Well, it's time for today's AM Minnesota program, and we are going to be talking about the carbon markets and the contracts in Minnesota. There are a number of companies that are out there marketing these contracts with farmers being able to get paid to sequester carbon. And it's been referred to as a wild, wild west. Well, the Minnesota Farmers Union, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, and the Farmers Legal Action Group, or FLAG, wrote a a book, a publication on the Farmer's Guide to Carbon Market Contracts. And that's what we want to talk about today. First in studio, Gail Donkers, and your official title, Gail, you're like Outreach Director for Southeast Minnesota or something along those lines. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. And Gail's a shy one. (laughs) (laughs) And also on the line, if my fingers work correctly, is Ariel Kagan, who's with the Minnesota Farmers Union Climate and Workings Land Program Director. Ariel, hopefully you are there. <laughs> are you there, Ariel? Uh-oh. Oh, there you are. Now you're there, right, Ariel? Okay. Great. Yep. All right. Yay. Yes. All right. And also on the line is, as Gordy was mentioning all morning today, a couple lawyers with FLAG or Farmers Legal Action Group. And I told Gordy, well, sometimes you do need to have a friend as a lawyer. Right, Lindsay? That's right, Gary. <laughs> Lindsay Coonan is with the Farmers Legal Action Group. And, Lindsay, I did warn you at the Farm and Power <laughs> Show when you, we had that nice long interview about these contracts that uh, you might be seeing and hearing more of me. I did warn you, didn't I? You did. You're a man of your word, James. <laughs> <laughs> and also on the line is Stephen Carpenter, also with Flag. And, and Steve, thanks for coming on the program. Of course. A pleasure to be with you. So why don't we start then with, with Stephen or Lindsay and just briefly say what Flag is all about and, and how you got involved in helping the Minnesota Farmers Union and the Department of Agriculture Try and give farmers some guidance in uh, this wild, wild west of the carbon markets. Sure, I'll go. Um, Lindsay, please jump in. Um, Farmers Legal Action Group is a nonprofit law firm. We're based in St. Paul, and and we work a lot in Minnesota, although also outside of Minnesota, largely in the Midwest and the South. And our mission is, as a nonprofit law firm working for family farmers is to try to help uh, farmers stay on the land and get a fair shake uh, legally. And one of the, we've been around a long time. We have our start uh, in what we hold now called the farm crisis of the 80s. And so, um, you know, that was sort of what got us going. And unfortunately, a lot of the issues uh, from back in the 80s uh, still sort of uh, – are are with us. And so one of those, and I you have to say, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, but um, a lot of the folks who work with farmers, who sell farmers things or buy things from farmers, uh, don't all necessarily act completely fairly all the time. And one of the things that we at FLAG have worked on for a long time is contracts that farmers sign. <laughs> And a lot of those contracts are perfectly fair and really help smooth out markets and, and things for farmers. But some of them are very one-sided. 
And so our goal is to try to make sure that farmers understand their risks when they're dealing with contracts. And so uh, and it, that's mainly been in livestock. Here, though, we have a new kind of a contract for carbon markets, and we started getting questions about them. And so we decided that uh, when we had a chance to work with Farmers Union and MDA, we said, oh, excellent, let's uh, – Let's write a guide, and that's one of the things that we try to do is write things that a farmer can make sense of and that are accurate and and uh, legally will help a farmer or a farm advocate. So that's how we got here. And, Ariel, did you help coordinate this then to put this all together with your official title as Climate and Working Lands Program Director? Yeah, well, I had the very fortunate uh experience of being hired recently and so stepping into this position when the guide had just been published so hot off the press and so uh, I didn't have much to do with putting it together that was my my colleagues here at the Minnesota Farmers Union over the past few months and year Uh, but now I have the honor of going out and promoting this really great guide and uh, making sure that it gets used because there's tons of good information in there. Now do you remember Ariel when you had the program at uh, the the North American Farmer and Power Show, the first farmer that talked, he was on the panel too, and he said, all these contracts and all these things, and I'm not a lawyer, they scare the bejeevers out of me. Do you remember that? And I said, that pretty you much, bet, yeah. and Gail is here sitting there laughing because she's a farmer too in her family, and Gail, you agree. <laughs> Absolutely, they do scare the bejeevers out of me. You know, I did go to school to be a lawyer, so I, I would definitely, if I, you know, was looking at one of these contracts, would pull a, a lawyer in to look, you know, help me look over the, the technical terms and that type of thing and to see what I was actually getting myself into. So I'm I'm super glad that Flag is a partner of ours with this. One quick question, Lindsay, uh, I call it legal jargon. It's almost like a, a separate language and words and words put together have a different meaning and, and us ordinary people kind of get the deer in the headlights look. But is there a reason for the legal ease because it has to be very specific or are you lawyers just trying to impress us with your knowledge? You know, well, I don't know how impressive we would be if that were the case. But I do think, you know, for better or worse, in in an ideal sense, these contracts are there to help clear up confusion, right? So Stephen mentioned there is a history where contracts can be used sort of in a power imbalance and to the detriment of a farmer. But um, but at the same time, I think the benefit of them is that if you can get really specific and understand what your obligations are, what the benefits are, and vice versa for the other party, then it can clear up a lot of confusion. But to your point, what that means is it takes a while, and it's important that farmers do take the time and speak with you know lawyers or other people if they need to to really understand every term in the contract. Because at the end of the day, if you sign it, you're agreeing to it. And so one of our you know goals with creating this guide was to make it, you know, take some of these terms that we might not use in our everyday lingo and um, explain what it means in reality so that farmers can make an informed decision when they're approached with these contracts. I think one of the reasons that kind of scares like Gail and I is because a stable of lawyers probably put this contract together. What did you say at the the Farm and Power Show in your presentation? Like, 
12 major contracts that, that you and Stephen read through. Bless your heart. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, so you just get the feeling that, well, the company's covered, but what about us little people? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And, and oftentimes, you know, uh, in, in the legal world, a contract of adhesion would be a contract where someone just approaches you and says, kind of, take it or leave it. You know, you either accept all of these terms or, it's, you know, we don't have a deal. And so sometimes I think it can feel that way. I think one of the things, you know, we encourage farmers to do is, you know, and as you said, we read through about a dozen different um, carbon contracts. And although they're similar, there are some really important differences between them. And so it's important for farmers to know kind of what are the deal breakers for them. And if there's something in a contract that's just not going to work for them, you know, then either try to negotiate and see if you can get it out or keep looking around um, to see if there's another company um, that might have a different requirement. And so what should you do, Gail? I'm sure you have people coming into your yard just out of the clear blue. So I'm out the farm this afternoon and somebody stops by and, and here's a contract and say, hey, Jerry, here's so many dollars an acre, sign it and you get paid for this every year. Is that kind of how it sometimes works? I think I think it does. You know, I think people are, um, you know, looking for farmers who are doing, um, you know, sequestering carbon in their fields and doing the um, regenerative agriculture and that type of thing. And they're, you know, seeking those farmers out and and coming in and talking to them. And, um, you know, once they are um, maybe even a target, you know, something sometimes by different co- uh, companies to try and get those carbon credits from that farmer and that type of thing. And I'll jump in and just say that there's a lot of different ways that farmers are being sort of rewarded or paid for their different conservation practices. So carbon credits, which this guide focuses on, is one way that farmers can get paid for the things that they're doing on their farm. But there's a lot of other types of programs and and sort of structures for that. So there's obviously the sort of traditional government payment programs like NRCS's uh, conservation programs that do sort of a cost share on practice adoption. And then there's also this whole world of supply shed company investment. And so those all might look a little different and have different uh, contract length, payment rates, relationships with the person, uh, you know, in terms of monitoring and verification. And then we're also about to see this big new world of the USDA's Climate Smart Commodity Grants. And so that's another thing that we at Farmers Union are really interested in is how can we make sure that our members who are, you know, wanting to participate in new marketing opportunities related to the climate change uh, situation sort of benefit uh, and that we make sure that these are fair uh, and, and beneficial for farmers in our area. I was thinking that, Ariel, that with the new farm bill, I think, one of the things we know is there's probably going to be more conservation provisions and, and that's all tied into probably the carbon contracts and sequestering. And I think this is called job security for Ariel, Lindsay, and Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a time of a lot of change and uh, a lot of investment in the space. Um, and, you know, one thing I'm really happy about with this guide is that it was a partnership with with FLAG and MDA and Farmers Union, but we also had a Farmer Advisory Council that helped to put this guide together. And so, you know, we made sure that this would make sense to farmers who were who were having folks show up at their farm and asking them if they were interested in these programs. 
Um, and that, I think, is only going to increase in the years to come because you're exactly right. There's uh, $20 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to go into climate-smart agriculture. There's the $3.1 billion of climate-smart commodity grants. There's state programs. There's private programs. Uh, it's just it's a pretty intense time in, in the regenerative agriculture sector. And farmers are going to be looking for some guidance because, you know what, we're already pretty busy. <laughs> and to have more time to try and decipher all this, we're going to be looking to someone. And that's part of maybe what this program is all about, too, Ariel, is to, to help educate people that this resource is there. And it's a starting point. And what was I kidding you, Lindsay, at uh, the Farm and Power Show is this, uh, for, yep, it says first edition. I think there's going to be a second, third, and probably fourth. <laughs> we'll see. It's possible. <laughs> well, if you can stand by, we have to take a quick break for the markets. And then maybe afterwards, Lindsay and, Lindsay and Stephen, you can kind of go over some, you know, fly, you know, something about things we should be looking for in contracts and things to watch out for. But first, we're going to take a quick market break sponsored by these KDHL Agra Boosters. They include Craig Keller at the Keller Insurance Agency in Nearstrand. Craig helped protect all things important to you. Also, insulation services. Find out about all the advantages of spray foam or blown-in insulation. Give Nate a call. 507-993-4570 or online at insulationservicesinc.com. Soybeans and corner mixed cattle and hogs are lower. I'm John Perkins with a Brownfield Market Update. With more than 50 corn lines to choose from, Stein offers Elite Genetics with a broad range of traits. Learn more at steinseed.com. Soybeans have turned mixed. They were up early but unable to follow through with bean oil moving down from its early highs. 19% of U.S. soybeans are planted ahead of average, even with delays in some areas. But reflecting tight near-term supplies, July beans are up a penny at 14.28 and a half. August is a half higher at 13.71. Uh, July meals $2.40 lower at 4.31.20. July bean oils up 29 at 52.10. Corn's mostly lower. There have been no deliveries on yet on May corn, a reflection of solid demand, even if exports have not met expectations. Corn planting's in line with the five-year average, and uh, emergence is slightly ahead of normal. July's up a penny at 585 and a half. September's down two and three quarters at 521. Wheat was mixed early. It's now lower. The good to excellent rating for winter wheat did improve, but remains at historically low levels, and spring wheat planting still slow. Uh, negotiations on the Black Sea Grain Initiative are expected to resume this week. July Chicago's down three and a half at 614 and three quarters. With planting slightly ahead of average, July cotton's down 47 at 8084. December's 48 lower at 8070. On bull spreading, July rice is up 18 and a half at 1780. September seven higher at 1545. Live and feeder cattle are down ahead of widespread direct trade. There was some light dressed business yesterday, but most of the major feeding areas were quiet. June lives down to dollar twenty two at one sixty three sixty two. August is one twenty two lower at one sixty one forty two. August feeders are down to dollar seventy at two twenty eight forty. And hogs have turned mixed but remain mostly lower with yesterday's lower close in pork. June is steady at eighty nine seventy, but July's down twelve at ninety one seventeen. Follow us on Twitter at Brownfield, John Perkins. Brown AM Minnesota on the Mighty 920 KDHL. The market update was also sponsored by these KDHL Agra Boosters, Northern Buildings. For quality post-frame construction, go to their website, northernbuildings.com. 
Also, Matt's Roofing, specializing in any shingling project, plus farm buildings and residential roofing over 100 years. Combined experience, no payment until completely satisfied. Call Troy Matt's 507-838-2254. And finally, Krennic Stump Grinding in Faribault. Do you really want to mow around those stumps in your lawn again this summer? Uh, give Chris Krennic a call, 491-2948 or online at krennicstumpgrinding.com. That's K-R-E-N-I-K. Chris is local and offers great discounts. The topic on today's AM Minnesota program is a publication, The Farmer's Guide to Carbon Market Contracts in Minnesota. My guests, Stephen Carpenter and Lindsay Kuhn, who are lawyers with Flagger, the Farmer's Legal Action Group. Ariel Kagan is a Climate and Working Lands Program Director for the Minnesota Farmers Union. And Gail Donkers, who is the Outreach Coordinator for Southeastern Minnesota in studio. So, Stephen, Lindsay, and Ariel, could we just pick it up? Uh, what do these contracts look like, and uh, what are some of the things that might raise uh, warning signs with you that farmers should look out for? And what are some of the good things in these carbon contracts? Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I'll give it a crack, okay. Jerry. Uh, so, well, you mentioned earlier the possibility that somebody walks into your yard and says, "Hey." Um, why don't you know? Why don't you we make a deal here where you agree to, uh, let's say, plant cover crops on on your corn and bean field, and then we'll give you a certain number of dollars per acre. And if it was that simple, we wouldn't have very much of a problem. The problem, though, is that that I've just got to say, and you were making fun of lawyers, and rightly so, Lindsay and I. <laughs> Lindsay and I can take it, and and by the way, we basically agree with you. So, uh, so we'll, let's, we we see we see even closer than you do, kind of what happens, and and uh, it's not very pretty sometimes. But here's the problem: is that uh, if what we write in the guide is that you really need to remember, and again, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but what somebody tells you in your yard is not the agreement. What somebody gives you as a handout with promotional materials is not your agreement. If they say, oh, yeah, just do a basic cover crop, um, it really doesn't mean very much. The agreement is in the writing. And this is just its one of the most important things that we emphasize in the guide is that to start off with, you need to look at the written agreement. If you ever, you know, it's what any lawyer would tell you, it's, it's in the written agreement. And so what somebody says, a promotional material, that doesn't do it. And the and again, going back to this example of, hey, why, why don't we do some cover crops and that'll sequester carbon, help the world and give you a few dollars per acre. The problem in these contracts is that it's much more confusing than that. The practices you need to adopt aren't super clear sometimes. The verification is a little is confusing. And what you end up with is what the contract often calls a carbon credit. And there's no official agreed upon price for that carbon credit. The people that are selling you these contract or pushing these contracts basically say, Well, we'll create a market. And then we'll sell your car- your carbon cr- 
credit, and we'll just see what it gets. And we promise to try hard to get you good money, but in in actual fact, a lot of in a lot of these contracts, nobody really knows what that car that ton of carbon you sequester is actually going to be worth. And so one of the things we emphasize is that you really need to understand exactly what you need to do and exactly how you're going to get paid, uh, if you're going to get paid, and um, understand it thoroughly and really look closely at the contract, not listen to what people say. So, and again, it sounds like we're not very trusting, and I and I guess that's just correct. We're, we're in the, the person who talks to you may be the kindest, most honest person in the world, but they're not going to be the one to make the decision later on on whether you get paid or not. Um, that's going to come down to somebody else, and it's going to come down to the contract. Well, so in Lindsay, principle, these things are great, but we have issues. I'm sorry to go on. No, no, Lindsay. Then you mentioned something at the the talk you gave with the Farmer and Power Show that really caught my attention. These contracts are for many, many years too. Yeah, that's that's true, and you can imagine, you know, part of the idea right behind these contracts is. These larger companies are, in general, larger companies are wanting to be able to say they're carbon neutral. And so if they can't do that in their own value chain, then they go outside of it. And in this case, looking to farmers who might be able to sequester carbon. Um, but that can take time. And, and so some of these contracts, you know, it could be for a few years or in some cases up to 10 years. And I think that's one of the, the big considerations for farmers to think about because you're agreeing to something on your land for a specific period of time. So as with, you know, many, many things in farming, you know, there's a lot of long-term planning, but important to consider, you know, what you envision for, you know, the next decade or so of your land and whether this fits into that or not. Well, then what about you must have to provide whatever company is with all sorts of data on what you're doing and what's happening. And I keep hearing about, the, the data and privacy and all that. So what happens to all the data that they collect on your farm? Is that yours or is that the company's? Now, that is a very, very good question. And that is one of the cases. I feel like Stephen and I are a broken record here. Just whatever the contract says. But, you know, generally these contracts will describe what data they have a right to and to some degree how they will use that. So I think that's a case where you'd want to look at that clause in the contract very closely to find out exactly what the company is saying, what type of data they're going to be able to access. And if it's something you're uncomfortable with, you know, then you need to weigh whether it's worth it or if there's room to negotiate there. Um, but if the agreement says, you know, they have a right to um, your, knowing your acres and what you're planning and, and, and all of that kind of information and that's really the company's information. Um, sometimes they might say, you know, we're not going to distribute it elsewhere, or that piece could vary. But that's where the language in the agreement becomes extremely important because obviously people have a lot of valid concerns about how their uh, information is being used. Generally speaking, what type of payments are they throwing around as potential payments farmers could get in these contracts? Roughly speaking, generalizing there, I know that's dangerous, but what kind of money are we talking about? Uh, 
Nobody knows. <laughs> well, I, this is this is okay. This is just sort of the lawyer and Lindsay and me. But I have to say, it's not very clear um, because it really depends on what your contract says and whether the whole thing is a success. I mean, one of the things that we fear is that in the future these markets won't be very popular, and the the price for a carbon that you sequester may stay really low. So um, I, I really don't even want to say, you know, what it might be because it could, it could vary so much. Um, we really don't know what these carbon markets will look like in the future. And, you know, farmers are used to uncertainty. You know, you don't know what your corn is going to be worth next uh, fall either. But in these markets, there's even more that's unknown and how, how things are measured, how they get sold. There's no standard market for carbon yet. And so there's even more uncertainty than I think what a lot of farmers are used to. So I, I apologize for dodging your question, but I hate to even say what a farmer should expect as a payment, let's say, per acre for for a practice. Um, Ariel or Gail, I mean, maybe you have more to you know, maybe you would want to say, you know, numbers that you've heard, but um, that's that's what I'll say is we don't really know. Well, I think some of yeah, it comes I mean, down. I think, oh, go ahead, Ariel. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think it's important to think about what's driving these markets for carbon credits. And so carbon credits primarily are being used to offset a company's carbon emissions. And so there are places in the world where there are regulatory structures around how much a company can and emit, and so then they are sort of legally required to buy these offsets, and so then you could imagine that the price would be higher for those markets. Yeah. We're seeing some of that in Canada and the EU, less of it in the United States. A lot of what's happening in the United States is voluntary carbon uh, accounting and reductions for companies, and so you can imagine that they'd be looking at a variety of ways to reduce and offset their carbon emissions. And so I think Stephen's exactly right, that there's a wide variety of prices. We see everything from $100 uh, a ton of carbon sequestered in the European markets down to $15 in the U.S. So it really just depends. And what's going to happen in the next few years is, uh, is you know, a crystal ball situation. So, um, you know, and I think the, the piece that's really important in the guide that we found, too, is one way we can learn about prices by sharing what farmers are are being offered. And and there were some confidentiality clauses. I wonder, Stephen, if you want to talk about that um, or Lindsay, because I think that's something we learned and that we at Farmers Union are now working to support some legislation that would prohibit those uh, confidentiality clauses. Go ahead, Lindsay. Okay. Yeah, you're exactly right. So um, there, in some agricultural contracts it has historically been the practice where you know you couldn't you couldn't share um when someone approached you with a contract the pricing or things like that that changed and there was a law that was passed that says you know you can't include these confidentiality um provisions in certain agricultural contracts when you know as this market for carbon contracts is emerging you know that law right now does not exist and so what this means is that as we saw in a lot of these contracts there are clauses that say, you know, you can't disclose the terms of these agreements or the prices or things like that. But Farmers Union is right. Um, there is language currently 
um, in a bill, and um, that would prevent carbon contracts from having such confidentiality clauses. And I don't know, Stephen or Ariel, if you have a better sense of where in that path that, that language is or how likely it is to pass. Well, we have only about a minute and a half left. Quickly, uh, Ariel or Lindsay, do you have any idea where that's at in the legislature? That's maybe something. Yeah, it's it's in the final uh, House bill policy language, and we're in conference committee now, so we'll see what uh, comes out of it. But we're hopeful that that'll that that will get through. Well, I have, an- um, I have another I question. To- that before we run out of time, folks can find the guide on our website, which is msu.org. That's one of the key questions I was going to ask, Ariel, and I was going to kid you about, uh, I have something else to ask Stu about now when I'm calling about the legislature. Another thing for him to keep track of. (laughs) So again, uh, the Farmer's Guide to Carbon Market Contracts in Minnesota. Is there a link then, Ariel, on the Minnesota Farmers Union website where it's easy to get to? It's right on our homepage right now. So if you just go to mfu.org and scroll down, you can find it. And I know it's also on the MDA website and on the flag website. So lots of places folks can find it. And we do have some hard copies available. If anyone uh, would like that, they can reach out to our office and we're happy to send those by snail mail. Well, thanks for coming on, Ariel, Lindsay, and Stephen, and I feel like, and also Gail for coming in studio. I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. We might have to go round two of AM Minnesota sometime too. But thanks again, Stephen, Lindsay, and Ariel for coming on today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. <laughs> and Gail, A thanks for, for coming in studio and MinnesotaFarmersUnion.org. And you can get the uh, Farmer's Guide to Carbon Market Contracts. Here's national news from ABC.